0: I want to talk a little bit about how we think about innovation at Amazon.com and uh, give you a couple of examples from the world. This is the wiffle ball, and the guy, his name is David Nelson Mullaney. And in 1953, he took a, a, a Cody perfume package and out of frustration because his son had broken a window with a regular baseball and created the wiffle ball. His son named it. Uh, this uh, woman is named Betty Nesmith Graham, and she is, uh, you will uh, know of her accomplishment in just a, a moment if you don't recognize her name, uh, but she was uh, an executive assistant in the time when uh, typewriters transitioned to film cartridges from ink ribbons, and uh, uh, and she was very annoyed. She wasn't an; espe- she was a great uh, executive assistant, but she was a rather poor typist. And she was annoyed by her inability to erase her mistakes with the film cartridges. So she invented liquid paper, um, which, after uh, uh, let's see, by ni- she did this in 1956. And in 1975, she sold liquid paper to the Gillette Corporation for 47.5 million dollars. So she did pretty well. Uh, with her innovation. And by the way, it was just white paint, so uh, it, <coughs> it's... There was no... Very, very clever person, because there was no, uh, uh, you know, special <laughs> chemistry involved here. <laughs> this, this was not a high-tech solution, um, and, uh, uh, but an extraordinary uh, observation of a problem and a solution. Now, so sometimes people see the problem, and the problem is really annoying them, and then they invent a solution. Sometimes you can work this from the backwards direction. And and in fact, in high tech, I think a lot of the innovation sometimes comes from this direction. You see a new technology or there's something out there, some new understanding in the world, and you work backwards from a solution to find the appropriate problem. Um, uh, Carbon dating is a little bit like this. So, you know, they'd always wanted this solution to be able to date things, but until they really understood radioactive decay, that uh, wasn't possible to come up with that solution. So some new understanding, some new concept enters the world, and that there are a lot of things like that in high tech. Another critical ingredient for anybody who would be innovative is persistence. And there are many examples of people being persistent in the world in order to uh, make something work, um, this is this is w- one of my favorites uh, wD forty was uh, uh, this, a small team, a small company of three people got a government contract to uh, develop a, uh, a, a, a some kind of coating that they could put on the skin of Atlas missiles while they sat in their silos to keep them from rusting and they uh, they worked on this for a long time to find this right compound that would do this job and, and finally did it. Um, now, it turned out that the Atlas missile market was a fairly small one. <laughs> so the, the company wasn't really able to make much progress. Now, what does WD-40 stand for? It's, it stands for Water Displacement <laughs> 40th Attempt. Um, and that, that's the name right out of the lab book. Um, when they did all this work to invent WD-40. Uh, so when they uh, properly recognized the size of the Atlas missile market, um, they started to think about a different business plan. And the company was called the Rocket Chemical Corporation. And it was their only chemical, and it was their only product. And so about ten years later, they renamed the company the WD-40 company, and, you know, the rest is is history. One of the most... Uh, pernicious obstacles to invention is learned helplessness. So people get uh, uh, the the problems that you encounter, uh, if you encounter them for a long enough duration, uh, humans, and actually biology in general, but humans in particular are so remarkably adaptive that we pretty soon see right through the problems. Uh, We don't even notice them. And so uh, great inventors and people who, they're very good at, you know, ordinary things Bother them, um, you know. They wake up every morning and take a shower, and they think this shower is terrible, you know. And, and but if you, but it's very difficult to do that to kind of push through this learned helplessness. You get used to something. Here's an example. This woman is named Mary Anderson, uh, and Mary invented the windshield wiper. Let me get Mary's paper out here. Oh well, I don't know the story well enough, um, but Mary. Uh, was uh, This was around 1913, and cars didn't have windshield wipers. In fact, when it rained, people would pull off to the side of the road, and they would take uh, a rag and clean the windshield off, and they'd drive another mile <laughs> and, and repeat this process. And they thought nothing of this. And Mary, you know, looked at this, and she said that it's ridiculous and that there must be a better solution than stopping every so often and cleaning off your windshield with a rag. And so she invented the windshield wiper, and she was roundly criticized that this was a ridiculous thing and people had all sorts of reasons why it wouldn't work, uh, primarily that it would be a huge distraction for drivers to have this thing going back and forth in front of them. And, uh, but she persisted, uh, and of, and, it, and this happened very quickly. Um, within 10 years <laughs> of her invention of the windshield wiper, they were standard equipment on all cars. So it was one of these things that, you know, it actually, even though people poo-pooed it, once they tried it, they're like, you know, not having to stop every mile with a rag is actually a pretty good idea. <laughs> um, and so Mary definitely got the last laugh. And this is one of my favorite inventions and a fantastic example of learned helplessness. Did you know, toilet paper was invented. Um, and people will see the year, this is in the mid-1800s, um, a guy named Joseph Gayetty, uh, 1857 invented toilet paper. This is the first toilet paper. It's hard to read, but it says, many people have wooed their own destruction, physical and mental, by neglecting to pay attention to ordinary matters. <laughs> Rarely in an advertisement does one find such a profound statement. <laughs> um, uh, and, uh, so, but this is one of those things. People didn't know they needed toilet paper until Joseph Gaetti invented it. And then very shortly thereafter, they began to realize they didn't know how they lived without it. Uh, and it's certainly difficult to consider going back. <coughs> now, um, let me talk about, let me make one very important uh, disclaimer right up front that Amazon.com does not claim any inventions nearly as important as toilet paper. Um, this is This is clear. Uh, but we have been working hard on innovation, and we've done a bunch of different stuff. And I want to, I want to, uh, and we have been for the whole nine and a half years of our of our history. And I want to talk a little bit about that. So first of all, it's sometimes useful to take a little time travel trip and move backwards. This is what Amazon.com looked like in July of 1995. I think this is actually a screenshot from August, and uh, uh, and it it, it it you know. It's changed a lot since then. (laughs) Um, This is, by the way, I wrote all of this HTML myself. (laughs) No, really, please hold your applause. There's no need. (laughs) You're you're embarrassing me. Um, And this, uh, notice some of the very obvious uh, problems that this has. For example, there's no search box on this page. The search box is a click away. Um, you have to click on, um, I think you, you know one million titles will take you there, uh, or search Amazon.com's million title catalog. So uh, th- th- this is what the website looks like today. And uh, we invest about $250 million in the last year, about $200 million a year for several years now, $250 million in the last year on technology and content development. And so the website should be better. Um, <laughs> These are significant sums of money. The company has generated over the last three years $950 million in free cash flow, in the context of of investing $650 million in technology in that same period of time. So we've 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 you know we've gotten smarter about a few things. The search box is now you don't have to click. It's not one click away. It's right there. Um, and there and there are a bunch of other things going on here, but. Uh, But the point is that you lose track in the moment of how much innovation there is over a nine-year period. One of the things that is very important at Amazon that we're constantly trying to do is reject this uh, either-or thinking that really is, at the heart, one of the big impediments to innovation. Uh, Let me give you a, a simple example, which is in customer service. It, uh what the what we want to do is make the service better so that we can have the a c s i rating that you're talking about of eighty eight which we are very very proud of um and'cause that's a very they they have a panel of like sixty thousand customers that they pull so it's a very statistically significant kind of result and something that we we do uh we, you know it's a, it's a metric that people have worked very hard not specifically on that metric, but on the things that lead to it. So it's a great, uh, uh, for us, it's something that we you know, are very proud of. This We get a lot of customer contacts, and one of the things that we would like to do is minimize customer contacts and in order to save money so that we can offer people lower prices, but still offer great customer service. And so how do you solve that problem? Well, you do it a couple of ways. One is you eliminate defects and eliminate root causes of defects. Because if customers are contacting you, they probably didn't want to. Um, I think actually the number four reason we get contacted is to say thank you. Uh, And so that's kind of nice. We don't need to eliminate those contacts. (laughs) But most of the contacts that we get are not to say thank you. They, you know, sometimes come in all capital letters. (laughs) They, um, uh, you know, and uh, so if you can eliminate the defects, you're going to save money because you're not going to have to handle the customer contact at all, and you're going to improve the customer experience. So there's no trade-off in reducing defects, uh, and, and the more, the closer you reduce defects to the root, uh, to the root cause, the, the more that's going to be true. You're going to both improve the experience and save money. No trade-off. But the second thing that we did is build uh, customer self-service, and this is our, you know, this is the page where you go to to do uh, customer self-service. And we let people cancel their own orders. We let people uh, 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 you know, consolidate orders and do all sorts of things and change their ad- shipping address and so on and so on, and check on the status and, and when is my thing going to arrive, etc., etc. And that has really empowered customers. And what you find is, when other, in other industries, like the hotel industry, embassy suites often wins the best customer service uh, award in, in hotels when they pull uh, heavy hotel users. And of course they, the, the, the secret to Embassy Suites winning that is that they don't actually have any service. It's all self-service. And so people, when they're serving themselves, think the service is terrific. Um, and uh, so you have the buffet out, and if the buffet is out and the food is free, so you just take the food and you leave, there's just not much that can go wrong. Um, and and, and that, that really helps. So that's something that, um, that we've uh, worked hard on, It. it's an example of rejecting either-or thinking. And we have been able to reduce contacts over the last seven or eight years by 85%, which is a huge reduction. And that, uh, that level of that driving down contacts per unit continues. The other thing you have to do if you're going to uh, innovate and that we try to do at Amazon.com is maximize the rate of experimentation. So, and if you're going to do that, you have to make sure that your cost of doing experiments is low. Uh, If your cost of doing experiments is high, then you're only going to get to do, the company is only going to do a few experiments per year. And if you're doing a few experiments per year, you're going to have to do some kind of global prioritization to see which kind of experiments you can do. And that's going to have a couple of downsides. One is you're not going to do much experimentation. But the second is that the best, most inventive people in your organization are going to become frustrated because they're going to have to get, ultimately, if if Amazon could only do three experiments a year, then if you wanted to do an experiment, you'd have to get my permission to do it. And I'm not scalable. So, So that is going to put a huge impediment in the way of invention. And if you want, on the other hand, if you want to make experimentation that everybody can do it and it doesn't take, you know, sort of the, you know, the, the institutional apparatus doesn't have to approve every experiment, then you need to make the cost of experimentation low if you're still going to make it a reasonable thing to do and, and, and not irresponsible. I mean, you can't just let, if the cost of experimentation is high, you can't just say, yeah, this is going to cost $100 million to do this experiment, but go for it. Um, so getting that cost low is is key. And one of the things that we've done over the years has put a lot of effort into making sure that our infrastructure and the framework that operates our website and other parts of our business really make it easy for people to do experiments in a self-service way without coordination with the institutional apparatus. Uh, one of the great things about operating on the web is that you have, uh, 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 you have so much the ability to collect data. Um, and all many things that, in the physical world, because the cost of experiment would be high, you have to use judgment to decide those things. You have to use intuition to judge those things because you can't do the experiment at realistic cost. So you end up having to argue over it. Um, and on the web, you can often just know the answer. So you know a simple example, this was a control, this page, and you'll see the difference here. A new line is gonna pop up. Want it delivered tomorrow, May 5th, order it in the next two hours and 53 minutes and choose one day shipping at checkout. So this is an experiment we did about a year ago And 50% of the customers saw it this way, and 50% of the customers saw it this way. And you can just literally measure the impact that this has on all sorts of important metrics, you know, first and foremost, sales. So you can see just telling people that they should order in the next two hours and 53 minutes, increase sales or decrease sales. Um, and, 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 And by how much? And is this worth doing? And is it worth pushing harder on? And so on and so on. So being able to do that kind of experiment and not having it be a big deal is is really wonderful. Here's another example, an even simpler example. This is, you know, customers who bought this also bought uh, uh, something that we're well known for. And uh, this has been improved over the years dramatically. Here's a small example. This was tested, too, although it's not the one I'm showing here. Is We added series to it. so that you're, you know, you're, Here's an actual individual DVD, but here's series from different things. That was a successful experiment, so it stayed. Um, one of the experiments that we ran with this customers who bought this also bought was it, it seemed very intuitive that if this works well, then adding images might make it work even better. So we added images. It turned out that it didn't make it work better; it made it work worse. Um, and even though that's a little counterintuitive, I mean, to to me, I can see it both ways. But that's the that's kind of the whole point here. Um, you know, you, you have your a priori guesses, but then you actually validate them with real data. Um, here's another try at images. Since the, this, the, 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 when this one didn't work, people said, well, maybe it's too clunky. Maybe it's pushing things down below the fold. So this one, oops, this one was tried. But it also didn't work as well. So we stuck with this one. Um, the other thing we try to do at Amazon.com is have a customer-centric obsession instead of a competitor-obsessed uh, uh, point of view. And there are, by the way, it's not clear in all companies at all times that this is the right strategy. Uh, competitor focus, and in fact, close-following strategies can be very effective uh, in certain business environments. And there's certainly nothing wrong with with the, with, with with that. But in our industry, and, and given the DNA that we have inside the company, the kind of people that we've attracted over time are people who like to invent, people who like to pioneer. So, you know, it, we'd have, we have the wrong culture to be close followers. So there's part of this that, you know, we are what we are, um, and, we, and, 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 and we kind of have to stick with that and, and make the best of that. I, I actually think in our space, this is also very handy because the rate of change in the online world is so rapid... That close following doesn't work as well as it might in a uh, more stable industry that, that that changes more slowly over time. But one of the things about these fast changing industries is I, I often get asked um, by uh, by uh, audiences if I, during uh, a period, uh, you know, what's going to change in five <laughs> to ten years. One of the questions that I rarely get asked, and I think is at least as important of a question, and maybe in some ways an even more important question, is what is not going to change over the next five to ten years? And that's another reason why customer-centric strategies can be so powerful. Because competitors-focused strategies have to change a lot. The competitive set changes so rapidly. Over the last ten years, our competitive set has changed, and the technologies have changed. So many things change. But the basic drivers of our business, the core things that customers want, do not change. Um, You know, we know that what customers want are selection, low prices, and convenience. And I guarantee you that 10 years from now, they're still going to want selection, low prices, and convenience. Uh, We are not going to wake up 10 years from now and have customers say, this is all well and good. I love this thing, Amazon.com, but could you make it a little less convenient? It's just not going to happen, and so, uh, so when you work on low prices, you have to figure out inventive ways to do that. And there are inventions at different at different granularities. There are the a lot of the most important invention happens at the finest granularities. So incremental improvements in unit productivity uh, are critical. So can you can you in in, in our fulfillment centers. Uh, you know, which are about uh, seven, we have about seven million square feet of fulfillment centers. Each you know, the, each one is about seven hundred thousand square feet. These are huge buildings, you know, kind of corner to corner. They're half a mile on a side. And so, how do you uh, pick? You can order any two items. We have a million more than a million items in stock. Which to put that in context, you know, a, a Barnes and Noble superstore has about one hundred twenty-five thousand items. Uh, a Costco or Sam's Club has about four thousand items. Uh, a, a big a big box electronics store has about seven thousand items so over a million in stock items is a lot of items and you can order any two of those items and uh, before six thirty p m eastern time if you if you can, if you order them before six thirty p m eastern time we will ship them that same night so and those two items might be on opposite sides of this big fulfillment center so we have to There's a tremendous amount of work and um, very sophisticated computer algorithms that go into optimizing the pick paths so that we can pick those items and get them into the same box at low cost. It's easy to do that if you're not worried about optimizing cost. It's very difficult to do that if you are concerned about optimizing cost. So those kinds of incremental improvements, taking those pick path algorithms and making them modestly better and doing that every day, and, and the key to doing that kind of invention is to make sure that you have small, separate, empowered teams that aren't subject to a bunch of dependencies in the rest of the organization. They know what they're trying to achieve, and they go about making those incremental improvements uh, day in, day out, month in, month out. They have to be able to answer the question, which it's amazing. You'll find that this is very common uh, in, in, in the business world, that people often cannot answer the question, how do you know whether you're getting better or not? Um, at this particular thing. And the, f- picking the granularity of where you ask asked that question is the trick. I mean, it's very easy, you know, on the distant outputs, if you look at, you know, something like free cash flow or revenues, uh, those kinds of things, people know whether they're getting better. But those things are not directly actionable. You can't, you know, assign some team and say, look, go drive free cash flow. Um, it's just too easy. Uh, I mean, it's, too, it's, too, it's, it's easy to command them to do it, but they won't be able to do it. I mean, it's a useless kind of thing to ask for. Um, and then on, on bigger granularities. So one of the things that we also observe is that used products uh, can have m- much more value proposition for customers. So we invite third-party sellers to compete against us on our prime real estate, which is our detail pages, That's an invention that also not only adds a lower price, but selection, too. So you go through all these things. Selection. uh, One of the things that we've done recently to increase breadth of selection at Amazon is, again, invite these third-party sellers in. This works in all the categories where we operate. Uh, And in some of the newer categories, like apparel, it's a huge part of the strategy. Um, Convenience. The most recent thing that we've done to increase convenience is, for our heavy customers... Uh, which is something called Amazon Prime. And Amazon Prime is a, uh, we only launched this a week ago, and it is a uh, $79 flat fee membership. You pay $79 a year, and you get two-day shipping for free. Uh, And that is a, uh, uh, the, the idea here is to take, what might be an indulgence for people getting next-day air shipment or second-day air. Next-day air is just $3.99 an item, once you're a member. And take something that they might perceive as an indulgence, transform it into a fixed cost, and then once people can view it as a fixed cost, they say, well, why not have two-day shipping on my items? Um, And so for a certain segment of customers, this is a very attractive proposition. And it's, for, it's specifically for that segment of customers where convenience is most valued. So uh, it, it, you know, there's another segment of customers who are, uh, f- uh, who are completely happy to wait you know, eight business days for the products. They'll use our Super Saver shipping offer, which is free. All they have to do is meet a $25 order hurdle. So they're perfectly willing to save a few things in their shopping cart until they can meet that order hurdle. They sort of manage that. It creates a little bit of mental overhead for them, but they're, they're okay with that. And so that becomes a great value proposition for them. And there's another set of customers who think about this completely differently. They hate the fact that there's this $25 order hurdle. Um, they want to be able to buy you know, one thing when they see it, get it done, have it come. They want it to come fast. They don't want to have to think about it. They don't want to have to try and optimize shipping costs. And in fact, one of the things that happens for that kind of customer, too, is they create there's a kind of um, cognitive dissonance or guilt that gets set up in their head, you know. They kind of, since they can get the shipping for free, they feel like they should be getting the shipping for free. Um, And so, uh, even though, you know, maybe for them, uh, that's not actually a rational economic consideration. Um, This is uh, another uh, convenience-oriented feature that's been on the website for a couple of years now, instant order update, uh, and this reminds you that you've already bought something. And we get feedback from customers all the time. This is something that we measured, tested, very, very carefully, and it reduces sales. Um, there's just no question about it that it, in the short term, it's a statistically significant way, reduces sales. And we so we overruled that with judgment and said, even though we can't do long-duration, longitudinal tests in time, like like a drug company would do to... Tests for toxicity and that kind of thing, where they do like a ten-year test. That, those tests are just so expensive to do. Um, we're going to make a we're going to make a intuitive bet that having this thing that reminds you that you already bought something will will actually will, will be so beloved by customers that they'll it'll be one of the reasons they like Amazon.com. And so uh, and. And, in fact, we do get tremendous anecdotal response back from customers saying they love this feature. Little, you know, thank you notes saying I was about to buy the same music CD that I bought a year ago. And this is very real. I don't know, you know, some people are more organized and have better memories than others. I definitely fall prey to this. In fact, just yesterday I was reading a blog that mentioned a, um, a Walt Disney DVD on the, back in the, in the late 50s or early 60s. I can't remember where Walt Disney um, was very interested in space, and he hired uh, Werner Von Braun and did a whole series of television specials about the exploration of space, starring Werner Von Braun. And these things have been collected on a DVD, and I read about this on this blog, and I thought, my God, this is so cool. I have to buy this. And so I went to Amazon.com. Actually, they were an associate, and so they had a link handy for me, and I clicked right through to the detail page, And there was my instant order update. I had bought it a year ago. (laughs) Um, And I've never watched it. I bought it, and I must have, like, you know, put it somewhere. And so now I'm going to go search for it. Um, uh, This is a real one, too. Drew, who's sitting down here, told me that he almost bought these uh, earrings for his wife a second time. And (laughs) is that a true story? and uh, so I think in that case, we, that was really a valuable service. <laughs> um, another uh, convenience-oriented feature is giving people high-quality product information right on the detail page. And one of the great things about this is an ex- This is a piece of the detail page for the Segway, and it explains in great detail how the Segway works. And um, one of the great things about the online model that that we use is that a lot of our best customer experience is a fixed cost. So if you have enough scale, if you have, you know, so in the last 12 months, we have these, um, uh, you know, 47 million customers who have purchased from Amazon.com. And if you have 47 million customers, you get to amortize that uh, the cost of all this content across that very large customer base. And so there's a sense in which you can have your cake and eat it, too. If you look in the physical world, at physical world uh, retail stores, the kind of high-touch customer experience stores cannot have the lowest costs. And the reason for that is that those stores, the things that generate high-touch customer experience in the physical world are variable cost things. So when you double your sales, you double those costs. Our model, when you look at this kind of content or any of the software features that we provide, at instant order update, it's, you know, somebody has to develop that and maintain it and make it work. But it would cost us the same to do that development if we had a million customers as it does if we have 47 million customers. So that, 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 um, that aspect of our model, that we get to transform customer experience into a fixed cost instead of a variable cost, is really a key, it's underappreciated aspect of, of what we do. Uh, now, uh, this is also for any company that wants to be innovative, absolutely critical thing to do, which is to not be distracted when people tell you that this is stupid and isn't going to work. Um, and people are well-meaning and entrepreneurs, uh, and, 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 and I've used that term in the most broad way, um, you know people who are building, people who are inventing, have to have this combination of stubbornness and flexibility. Um, and the trick, of course, is knowing which to use when. Um, but, uh, but what you cannot do is be distracted by the outside world. You have to stay heads down, focused on customers, and not let external events distract you. And Amazon is a very good case of this. Um, this is um, uh, December of 1998. <coughs> Uh, the, but and actually, this is a phrase that, um, and I think Rob is in the audience. But this is not you, Rob. You didn't write this. Um. <laughs> um, but this is the, this is a case of uh, uh, in 1997, um, uh, Forrester Research coined this term, and, and Barnes and Noble had just launched their uh, online store, and I thought that Forrester had a very good point. Um, they were saying, you know, Amazon is this two-year-old company. They've had this nice two-year run, but, you know, for sort of now the, the big, the big uh, gorilla has come to town. And at the time, we had annual revenues of $60 million a year. We had 125 employees. And Barnes & Noble had, you know, 30,000 employees and at that time, I don't know, $3 billion a year in sales. And so it didn't seem like an even fight. And uh, and they coined this term, Amazon.toast. Uh, and, and it was widely picked up. And, you know, the, the, and it did bother. The, the, there's one feedback loop here that has to be managed, which is you have to make sure that, the, the, that you have some all-hands meetings and that you communicate to employees what they sh- you know, should they be worried about this or shouldn't they be worried about this. And in our case, I thought this was a very simple situation because the, um, I didn't think there was anything we could do about what our competitors were going to do. And so, you know, we did have the all-hands meeting, and I asked all of our 125 employees to be terrified and to wake up with their sheets drenched in sweat every morning. And uh, I did, I carefully specified sweat. Um, And, and, but that they should be afraid, not of our competitors, but they should be afraid of our customers, because our customers are the only ones who are going to ever give us money. Um, And so... That helps. It actually helps have that kind of customer focus because it, it helps you stay heads down. You don't get worried about your competitors. Your competitors are going to do what your competitors are going to do. You can watch them. You can learn from them. But you can't um, let them set your strategy. You have to do what you're going to do. And you also can't let the media set your strategy. Um, and, 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 but you do see that happen. You can't let Wall Street set your strategy either. This is a year after Amazon.tost. This is 19 May of 1999. Um, and uh, this, um, I, I've always been amused by this. but I'm, I'm comfortable being misunderstood. But this I have to tell you, my mom really hated this. This really bothered her. Um, she, she was so pissed off about this. Uh, this just that she just in like that caricature. It really bothered her, so. But uh, anyway, you just have to ignore uh, those outside uh, influences. You can listen and kind of try to see if there's any, any any kernels of truth that you can take and adapt. There's no reason to have a siege mentality, but that's those are the kind of reactions you see. You either see that people enter this sort of siege mentality with respect to external factors, or. They, uh, uh, or they're too responsive to these external factors. Uh, and the reality is, you have to take it with a grain of salt and you know, re-examine your strategy, make sure that you really believe in it, it's the right one, and stick to it. That's the only way you can invent. Um, because invention always leads you down paths that people are gonna think are weird. It's sort of obvious. This is, uh, this is, uh, this is that ACSI score. And It's actually four years running that we've had this highest uh, score. So one of the things I mentioned is with the carbon dating, and what happens in the um, uh, uh, online is, you, uh, in the well, in tech in general, is you get you get so much change, and you have to sometimes look at the change and see what you can invent. So one of these things is Moore's law, which is re- re- remarkable, and its variants for bandwidth and 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 and, and storage. But if you look at disk space costs as, a, as an example, disk space is 30 times cheaper today than it was five years ago. And so you know, that's just what happens when things get twice as cheap every year for five years. And humans aren't good at thinking in those kind of you know, exponential terms. But this is really um, a big deal. And if, if, you, if you were to picture a physical store, it creates th- when things change that rapidly, it actually creates a problem. You have to figure out, what are we going to do with all that disk space? Because you, know, you can't just pocket the cost savings. You don't get enough value out of that. You have to say, well, if we can use 30 terabytes of disk, and that's a reasonable thing to, to, to spend money on now, um, what could you do that would actually benefit customers that use this 30 terabytes of disk? Um, and the, uh, uh, one of the things that we did was search inside the book, which uses about 30 terabytes of disk. Because we keep the full images of all the pages, and we now have uh, over 200,000 uh, different books that are completely searchable, and you can view the actual images of the books. And uh, and and that uh, uh, it kind of the good news about that is it's very beneficial to customers, and it soaks up a lot of this now almost free disk space that you can buy out in the world. Um, another example is uh, A9. Let me just. here, which just launched, again, about a week ago, the A9 Yellow Pages. We do a search on optical. Oh, this regular mouse works, too, and it's a lot easier to use. Um, and one of the innovative things that the A9 team did for their Yellow Pages is take 20 million photos of over a million different businesses in 10 different cities. Um, and they did that in a very cool way. I mean, this, in some, you know, here, if you go down the list here, this is optical in Seattle. Uh, but, you know, the map changes, the little numbers highlight as you go over, which I think is a nice user interface touch. But if we go down to Optical Illusions Inc., click on that takes you to a detail page for (laughs) Optical Illusions, Inc. And you can kind of stroll along the street here. So here is, um, you know, and you can zoom in on this picture. (laughs) And actually, this is kind of a cool picture, because this is, you can see in the reflection of this window, that's the vehicle that we took the picture from. And uh, I also, I like the way this guy is in motion. It's just kind of a, and the, you can't barely see her, but there's a woman behind him. You can just sort of see her, see her shoes. Um, we have, this thing's only been up a week, and, but, you know, but if you take 20 million, 20 million photographs of a million different businesses, we've already gotten lots of contacts from people um, you know, who, are, who found themselves in these pictures. And uh, if they request to be removed, we remove them. But, but this, is a, 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 this is a pretty cool use of technology. And again, it's looking at what's changed in the world. Because one of the most interesting things about this is, is how they did it. Um, and you can keep going, by the way. I can click here, and it'll take me, you know, down the next street. I can, I can just keep walking down this street. Um, okay, so how did they do this? Should I go to the, back to the PowerPoint? All right. Here's the truck. There, there, uh, there are more than one of these. Um, that is a, uh, a camera, a digital camera, mounted on the top of the truck. And when they first started doing it, their first tests were done with, not with SUVs, but with regular cars, and, um, and the, the camera was not in any kind of enclosure, but they attracted too much attention, and people would like smile for the camera, <laughs> uh, or, or do more profane things <laughs> for the camera. Um, so they've solved that problem. By getting a, a taller vehicle and uh, you know putting the camera in an enclosure so it just sort of looks like some luggage on the roof and people don't notice it. Um, and the, the, so, let's see, here's <laughs> one of the, you guys, if you've been to Times Square, you may have seen this guy. He's out there all the time. I think he's called the Naked Cowboy. Um, he's been doing this for years and years and years. He was there, he's been there at least for eight years, maybe longer, I don't know. Um, and I think TGI Fridays has hired him now. Um, <laughs> as a sort of mascot. But anyway, the, um, they captured the uh, naked cowboy in Times Square. Let me... Is this when I go to the video? All right, let me see. we are got to do this the hard way because it's not working the easy way. All right, watch this. I should Actually, let me pause this for a sec. Um... This, let me give you a little setup. So this is some, some of the actual footage from this camera. This is a, just to give you the, the this is a, a camera that is connected to a laptop that has a GPS in it. Um, and so the G, the car just drives around, and the driver doesn't have to do anything except make sure all the equipment is running properly. And it just takes, you know, a bunch of frames per second. and uh, and, 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 and the car knows where it is at all times. Um, so this, uh, now, we, we, one of the cities that we did, we did over 10 cities, but one of them was Washington, D.C., and, um, uh, and, and the driver, whose name is Josh in this case, had a fairly interesting experience because the camera broke um, and needed some adjustments. It just got jiggled or something and needed to be f- fixed and remounted, So, which happens occasionally, so he didn't think anything of it. He stopped the car, he got out, and he started to fix the uh, camera. But unfortunately for Josh, um, he he happened to stop right in front of the State Department. (laughs) And and, uh, unfortunately, just to make matters a little more complicated, it was the day before the election. (laughs) And so Washington was at its highest uh, state of alert, and uh, Fortunately, this entire incident was captured uh, on video, and it's kind of fun to watch. So there's Josh. He's getting out of the car. Going to work on the uh, camera a little, but he sees somebody's coming. He's reaching for his cell phone now, trying to call Amazon.com legal. Now Now there are two of them. They're very curious why Josh is photographing the State Department. Here's the third one. Here's the the fourth one. And if you can catch glimpses of Josh's face, you can see that he is a little stressed. By the way, at at a certain point here, you can see the woman in the red hair um, who I think is the one sort of in charge she 's trying to calm Josh down and she says something to him like it 's not like we 're accusing you of having a bomb or anything, which didn 't really work um, oh yeah here 's the the great they take a picture of Josh and the uh and they they actually were um were they they actually were very uh friendly to Josh and he explained the whole thing and they made some phone calls and confirmed his strange but true story <laughs> um, about what was going on and, all, and the whole incident only took like 45 minutes and, and, <laughs> and, and, <clears throat> and Josh was sent on his way uh, to photograph the rest of Washington, D.C. Um, let's go back. But all of those things, oh, oh, okay. All those things are, if you look at what all the problems that had to be solved to do something like get that, you know, the GPS integrated with the digital camera and get those in trucks and then solve all these little point problems that people were noticing the camera and so on, that's what innovating is all about. Um, It really is those kinds of problems. And the great thing about this is uh, at Amazon.com is I do very little of this. So, you know, we have a culture where people in small teams can go off and do these relatively low-cost experiments and try to build uh, neat things. If you want to have an innovative company, the single most important thing, even ahead of minimizing the cost of experimentation, is to make sure that you're selecting the people correctly on the way in. Um, And so you need to hire people who uh, like to build, who like to invent. Um, And you need to make sure that they like to do that at all granularities. You know, sometimes you come across these people who are only interested in inventing at the the grandest sort of whiteboard level, um, and they actually can't make progress in the real world. You know, they're unwilling to figure out how to mount the camera on top of the truck. Um, And mounting the camera on top of the truck turns out to be incredibly important. Um, This is, uh, I've mostly included this slide to demonstrate my true pedigree as a geek, this is me in fourth grade. Um, and uh, all, most of you in this room are far too young to recognize that device that I'm sitting in front of. But I was um, I'm, I'm one of the only people I know who had access to a com- my age who had access to a computer in fourth grade. I went The school that I went to in, in Houston um, got this uh, a company donated this teletype and also donated some excess uh, mainframe uh, time-sharing time that they had. And so we got this thing one day, and none of the teachers knew how to use it, and nobody knew how to use it, but it had manuals. And that that phone receiver, it's called an acoustic modem, and you actually put the, uh, it's a 300 baud modem. And the all the programs were stored on paper tape, which you'd punch holes in. And um, uh, we, uh, me and about three other kids started staying after school and, and learned how to... Uh, program this uh, this mainframe computer and store our programs and our very primitive programs on paper tape, and that went on for several months until we discovered um, that the mainframe was pre-programmed to play Star Trek, um, and pretty much that's all we did with the computer after that. We would stay after school. The teachers were like, "Boy, these kids just love computers." Um, It was this really cool Star Trek game um, where, you know, it's all done on this this teletype on paper and it would print a little, uh, I think it was a 9x9 grid and somewhere in that 9x9 grid, like, you know, an asterisk would be a star and a plus sign would be a Klingon ship and you had to do, it was a simulation game and you had to, like, you know, you had limited resources. Like, you had only so much power and you had to decide how to allocate that power between shields and engines and phasers and... Um, it was actually unbelievably fun, and uh, <laughs> so. Uh, the, the, but you've got to. This is you've got to find people who are passionate about building. This is our first uh, employment ad at Amazon.com. We posted this on Usenet, and uh, and, and we asked for exactly what we wanted, uh, and and you know the the technology, uh, and computer science people and and business people who are interested in technology have always been most important. So you must have experience designing and building large and complex yet maintainable systems, and you should be able to do so in about one-third of the time that most competent people think possible. (laughs) Um, And by the way, uh, as a total aside, you'll see that the name of the company at the time was Kadabra. Uh, That was the first name of the company, and Kadabra was a terrible name um, because... We, while driving across the country, as my wife driving, I called a, an attorney in Seattle and asked the attorney to if he could incorporate the company so it would already be ready by the time we arrived and He said, "Sure, this is no problem." By the way, this attorney was um, my friend 's divorce attorney, so it wasn't this wasn 't like Wilson Sr. or anything you know this was and, and um, so he said, sure, you know, what do you want the name of the company to be? And I, you know, was all proud of myself for having anticipated that question. And um, I said, "Cadabra." And he said, "Cadaver?" <laughs> I, I thought, I knew right then that my name choice was not going to survive for long. I was like, no, 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 Cadabra, no, like abracadabra. Um, and he was like, oh, okay. Um... <laughs> So he uh, uh, about three months later, we changed the name uh, to Amazon.com. Uh, and uh, that was chosen because it started with the letter A. And at that time, all of the lists online were alphabetized. And it was also the domain name was available. And it, was inter- it worked internationally. And it was short and easy to spell. So there were a whole bunch of good features of that.